This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Danny Heath. Danny Heath, card number 753, outfielder, first baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And we are pleased to welcome back to the show guest Mark Simon. Mark Simon, writer and researcher at Sports Info Solutions, a Mets historian, and Baseball Stats Hall of Famer, and top performer when it comes to finding interesting facts and perhaps corrections in the 1988 Tops podcast. So welcome back, Mark. Why are you here to talk about Danny Heap? So a number of years ago, Sabre put out a book about the 1986 Mets, and they called for people to write biographies of each of the players, just as they do typically for their bio project. And I'm not ever going to be someone who's going to volunteer to write about Daryl Strawberry or Dwight Good or Gary Carter or Keith Hernandez. I like to write, as we found out when I was on here for Neil Allen, I like to write about the, the the secondary guys, the hidden figures of the team. Danny Heap definitely qualifies as that, a very respectable man. Before we get to Danny Heap, we have follow-up from a couple different episodes. First, we have Kevin McReynolds. Kevin was a divisive figure when I posted the episode on Facebook. He got some stick for his comments about the 1988 playoffs and whether he'd rather be back at the Double Deuce in Arkansas hunting ducks. Mark, As a Mets fan, do you have any specific Kevin McReynolds memories? Yeah, I think that, uh, well, there's two ends to this. One is that he he didn't like baseball. Like, it just wasn't necessarily (laughs) his thing. He was great at it, but he didn't particularly like it. And I think that was reflected in things he said, the generally quiet attitude. But when you look at him as a whole... Uh, very good player, uh, smart base runner. I think it was talked about in the previous in the episode a couple of weeks ago. The the twenty one for twenty one. He was terrific. I think he would be better remembered as a Met had the eighty eight team done what it was supposed to do, and he was kind of right in the middle of that. And indulge me here in one of the lowest memories of my childhood. Game four of the 1988 NLCS, Mets-Dodgers, Mets up two games to one. This game is often remembered, and I think you talked about it, for the Mike Sosha home run off of Dwight Gooden in the ninth inning. Kevin McReynolds had a pretty good game that game, home run and a double. But in the 12th inning, the Dodgers took the lead on Kirk Gibson's other notable postseason home run. And in the bottom of the 12th, the Mets loaded the bases with one out, and they had Strawberry and McReynolds up. Strawberry popped out. Kevin McReynolds hit a fly ball to shallow center. John Shelby, who in game one of the series missed a ball to shallow center that would have won the game for the Dodgers. This time he comes sprinting in and he makes kind of a semi-shoestring catch to win the game for the Dodgers. Oral Hershiser gets the save. The Dodgers win the next afternoon. They played really late. Uh, for game four and then game five started at noon the next day so it was wake up go back to the ballpark for game five Dodgers blew out the Mets Dodgers won in seven games and Kevin McReynolds got to go duck hunting he sure did bitter taste left in a lot of Mets fans mouths there and but Kevin McReynolds mouth ended up being filled with roasted duck so good job Kevin (laughs) 
Mark, do you have any other follow-up from recent episodes now that you're, we've got you on a roll? So I feel bad that generally after every episode, I have some sort of commentary <laughs> for you in your direct messages on uh, Twitter. I'll just give two. One is that I talked to Sean Dunstan's daughter, which uh, was fantastic. Jasmine Dunstan. And the reason that I talked to her was because you guys mentioned it. I didn't even know that Jasmine Dunstan was working for the White Sox. I host a podcast for the company that I work for. We were doing a Black History Month-related episode, and she was one of our guests. She's the only uh, black woman to be the director of minor league operations for a team. She was a great interview. It was terrific to talk to her. And then there's the book that you mentioned a couple of weeks on the show, Baseball Confidential, one of my all-time favorite books written by the combination of Nash and Zulo, who wrote the famous series of the 1980s books that you should get as well, The Baseball Hall of Shame. There are no funnier books than the Baseball Hall of Shame. They go anecdote by anecdote through some of the craziest, worst, most bizarre things in baseball history. I interviewed one of them like 25 years ago, and I remember just talking to them. They were like very kind of blah, blah, blah when I talked to them, but got them on the air, and the guy was terrific. Those are excellent books. You'll get information in those books that you'll never be able to get anywhere else. And then lastly, just uh, for kicks, last week you titled the Sam Horn episode initially Steve Horn. And I figured that that was some sort of tribute to the NBC statistician Steve Horn, who used to work on the World Series, helping the likes of Bob Costas and uh, others in the broadcast booth. That's that's a good guess, Mark. It, it And thank you for alerting us to that error. What had happened was I posted that episode later in the evening than I had been this last several weeks. I was getting a little sleepy. And for some reason in my mind, I I had recalled that as we ended the episode, both David and I looked at each other and went, Steve Horn, in a callback to Steve Holt from the Arrested Development series. I had the gif on my phone of Steve Holt in it with his hands in the air And when titling the episode, I'm sure that's what seeped into my brain. So I titled it Steve Horn, but thank you for correcting it. Luckily, we fixed it and immediately everyone's feeds were updated. So thank you for that. And David, there was more follow-up from Sam Horn, right? Yeah, aside from Steve Horn, Sam (laughs) Horn had another nickname. When I was looking at the Taiwanese baseball Wikipedia through Google Translate, it translated Sam Horn's name as torrent throughout the the wikipedia article and i thought like that's a cool nickname maybe he got this cool nickname because he led the league at home runs big power hitter a torrent of home runs and so i asked past guest andrew at painted cap on twitter if he knew what the background was of this torrent nickname and he said it wasn't necessarily a nickname but foreign players were given a chinese name that sounds similar to their english name and so in this case the given name when he played in Taiwan was Shan Hong, which means mountain torrent, which I thought is a, that's a cool name. Other players, not so lucky. Some of them are given names that are related to products sold by the team's parent company. Brian Giles, for example, was given the Chinese name for Alfa Romeo. And Brandy Van was given the name Ba Wei, which is the Chinese for Budweiser. <laughs> so Sam Horn, mountain torrent, got the better end of the deal here. So let's go to Danny Heap and let's go to the front of 753. It's a bright, sunny day in Los Angeles. Danny kind of looks like David Duchovny here. This kind of looks like, you know, kind of looks like an episode of Californication. 
this is a timeless looking card. I feel like Danny, there's nothing dated about Danny's look or the Dodgers logo, uniform, hat, still the same. Nothing in the background. We, we don't see anybody in a Tom Selleck mustache or shades in the background. This card, this picture could have been taken really any time, but there isn't one little time stamp here, and that's the patch that is perfectly framed right below Danny Heap's nameplate in the bottom right-hand corner. It is a patch of Dodger Stadium, and this was the 25th anniversary of Dodger Stadium. The stadium opened in 1962, and so the 1987 season was the 25th anniversary, which brings me to... uh, the inexorable march of time. It's 2022 now. This is the 60th anniversary of Dodger Stadium. And that patch is making me feel pretty old. But Danny looks good, looks young. This is an interesting time in his career. Uniform looks really clean and really pops off the the card here. He looks like he's about to say something particularly wise. Maybe <laughs> this is a little bit of a different look from most of the cards that you talk about, right? Like this isn't a pose shot. This is, and this isn't him action shot. This is like him in the dugout in spring training, just kind of walking through. It's an interesting card, and also, as I said, you know, it's a clean look, and he looks like kind of a fresh faced Danny Heap, not necessarily somebody who you might associate with a group called the Scum Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. Well, let's flip to the back of 753, Danny Heap, outfielder and first baseman. 5'11 and 185, left-handed batter and thrower. Drafted in the second round by the Astros in 1978. Born July 3rd, 1957 in San Antonio, Texas, with a home in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio was named by Spanish explorers in 1691 who came upon a river and a village of indigenous Payaya people on June 13th, which is the feast day of St. Anthony of Padua. San Antonio, famously the home of the Alamo, which was subject of a 13-day siege that was pivotal in the Texas Revolution. A small group of Texans fought off a few thousand Mexican troops led by General Santa Ana. Among those who died in the ultimately failed defense were Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett. The loss at the Alamo was a turning point, galvanizing Texans, and within a month, Santa Ana was captured and the revolution ended with the Texans victorious. There is no basement in the Alamo, but as a side note, General Santa Ana later led troops in the Mexican-American War. In the course of that war, he lost his wooden leg, and Illinois National Guard troops captured that wooden leg, and it is currently held in the Illinois National Guard Museum. However, there's a second wooden leg that has a baseball connection. The first leg was more of a prosthetic leg. The second was more of like a peg leg. And when that one was captured, it was used as a baseball bat by National Guardsmen. It's also on display in Illinois at the Oglesby Mansion. Governor Oglesby was a former governor of the state of Illinois and also served in that National Guard uh, division that captured the leg. And that leg is, the story of that leg is on Roadside America. Other San Antonio information here, aside from General Santa Ana's leg, the population of San Antonio in 1950 was about 400,000. In the past 70 years, it has more than tripled to 1.4 million, the seventh largest city in the United States. Growing up, Danny had a baseball hero to look up to. His uncle, Matt Batts, which is a, a fantastic baseball name, 
Bats was mostly a backup catcher for a decade in Major League Baseball, mostly with the Red Sox. Because of that history, most of Danny's family, while Texans, were Red Sox fans, but Danny preferred the Pirates of Willie Stargell and Roberto Clemente. He went to Lee High School in San Antonio, which, while initially named for General Robert E. Lee, has been renamed the Legacy of Educational Excellence High School. Other Lee alumni include Vikings quarterback Tommy Kramer and animator and creator of Adventure Time, Pendleton Ward. Fantastic television program, Adventure Time. Danny was a really good player in high school, but he didn't really attract Major League scouts as a high schooler. So he instead went to nearby St. Mary's University, close to home in San Antonio, Texas. This was a really good program in the 50s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, Had some ups and downs up to the time where Danny came along. Then he got there. He was fantastic. They got good. He was both a great hitter and pitcher. uh, And they retained that success after he left and carried it over for a while. But this was an NAIA team, not even an NCAA team. So a pretty remarkable story for Danny to make it from the NAIA into, into the major leagues. The school had a long sports history. In 1910, their baseball team was undefeated except for a single game that they lost against Ty Cobb's Detroit Tigers in an exhibition game. As Mark said, Heap was a pitcher at St. Mary's. In 1976, the team earned a spot in the NAIA World Series for the first time. 1978, he had a .69 ERA and 11 saves. Because the stats aren't great for this NAIA level of, of college athletics, it was hard to find stats on his hitting, but he must have been a great hitter as well. He was all-conference for three years and was Big State Conference Player of the Year in 1978. And so there must have been some offensive talent there that was on display at St. Mary's. While not Division I, he, he impressed scouts, and he was selected in the second round by the Astros in the 1978 draft. He starts at A-ball at Daytona Beach. Uh, minor league stats are not on the card. They're a little too far back. He hit 340 in 1978, earning his spot in A Columbus in 1979. Showing power at A, hitting 21 home runs, and again, hitting very well, 327 for the year. And that leads to the fun fact that Danny led the Southern League with 171 hits and 274 total bases at Columbus in 1979 and was selected as co-winner of Loop's Most Valuable Player Award. That also earned him a September call-up. Unfortunately, he only played in 14 games, hitting 143 in that initial call-up. He was sent down to Tucson at AAA, and we should really look at these cards. These Tucson Toros uniforms are outstanding. Yeah, I've pulled this up on the Jumbotron here, David, and I mean, you've, oh my, my God, (laughs) my God. You've got every color except for blue and purple, I think, is represented in this jersey somehow. It's almost undescribable. I would say a, a sunrise striped pattern. It's almost like the old Taco Bell logo, the color scheme of brown, yellow, red, green. Actually, the colors of a Taco Bell taco. Yeah, it's a taco on top with nacho cheese on the bottom. Orange pants. And then the hats, uh, the, none of the colors match. No. Particularly this Jimmy Sexton card shows the full range of color, but... Danny got to wear these nightmarish uniforms. I don't know if that confused pitching, if the pitchers didn't know whether they were looking at 
some kind of monster. But Danny was a great player for the Tucson Toros in these atrocious uniforms. He was the best player on a team that finished 87-59, and 59, which was the best record in the PCL. He hit 343 with 17 home runs and earned a slightly longer call-up to the Astros, hitting 276 in 33 games in 1980. And he got a taste of the postseason with the Astros when they played the Phillies. Well, a very small taste. He had one at bat and f- flew out in the 10th inning of the final game of the best of five, and the Astros lost the series, and that was it. The Astros made the playoffs again in 1981, and Danny Heap again was one of the best players at Tucson, hitting 337 with 11 home runs, and got a couple call-ups, playing in Houston in April and May, and then a late-season call-up. The Astros again earn a spot in the NLDS by winning the National League West in the second half of the 81 season, and Heap helped in that effort with a 389 average in nine games in the season's final month. But unfortunately, he didn't get a chance to play in the NLDS against the Dodgers that year. So there's a little bit of a precedent being set here where Danny Heap was around for some incredible postseason moments, the first of them being the 1980 NLCS, which might be the best postseason series in Major League history. And then he's got some uh, even better stuff uh, still to come. Well, 1982 was the first year where he didn't spend any time in the minors. He played in 85 games, starting 51 of them. The corner outfield spots in Houston were filled by Jose Cruz and Terry Poole, so Danny was the odd man out. But after this season, in need of pitching help, the Astros sent Danny to the Mets in exchange for Mike Scott. Mark, as a Mets fan, were you disappointed to see this great pitcher, Mike Scott, who's going to go on to win Cy Young Awards, leave the Mets? In exchange for a backup outfielder? No, because there was no reason to think that Mike Scuff was going to be anything particularly good uh, at the time. His oh, numbers. I'm sorry. What did uh? What what was that? <laughs> <laughs> that was deliberate. Mike's. I called him Mike Scuff. Mike Scott was uh, just a mediocre pitcher at the time. There was no reason to think that he would go to Houston, discover a split-fingered fastball and maybe something else, and become a dominant pitcher in the majors for a number of years, thanks to the combination of Roger Craig, former Giants manager, former 1962 Met 2, and something else. There was no reason to think that Scuff was going to be that good of a pitcher, and Danny Heap was a good bat in a crowded outfield, and a nice player that could serve in a utility fourth outfielder pinch-hitting role for the Mets. And to that point, Mike Scott was 27 years old, he had a 14-27 and 27 record and a 77 ERA+. plus. There was no sign that this guy was going to go on to be a Cy Young winner. Danny Heap was still young, a good hitter without a position, and looking for a new start in New York. And that year, 1983, he plays in a career-high 115 games, but only had 253 at-bats because still... Many of those games he was pinch hitting, and he, he really didn't like pinch hitting. It seems like that really came through in your research, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because he was quite good. He was someone that was actually really good as a, as a pinch hitter. Four home runs in 1983, which is kind of the early part of his Met career. You always felt like you were going to get a good at bat when he came to the plate, and he's got this quote that was in the Sabre bio, pinch hitting was brutal, I was never very good at it. That seemed kind of weird to me, and if I remember right, I think I pressed him on that, and he was just like, "It's it was really tough. I, I was fortunate. 
he he made it a point to say that he was fortunate to have learned from one of the best, which was Rusty Staub, who was a great pinch hitter for those early 80s Mets after a very good career with the Mets as an everyday player. Eight home runs altogether that season, but one low light for Danny on May 8th that season against his old team, the Astros. So this is funny because at the time that I wrote the bio project, I didn't know about this game. And I feel bad that I didn't get to, although I I don't know how he would have reacted uh, given how the game ended. So yeah, May 9th, Mets, Astros, 4-4 game, 6th inning, 2 outs, Phil Garner on 2nd, Danny Heap playing 1st, normally played in the outfield. Jose Cruz hits a ground ball of Heap. Heap fields the ball, tries to make a play at 1st base, close play, Cruz is safe. Heap disagrees, turns, um, argues with the umpire, and meanwhile, Phil Garner runs from second to home, scores the go-ahead run. It turned out that he was right, because replay showed that Cruz was out, but replay didn't exist. Also, (laughs) side note, this foreshadows another game in Mets history a few years later where David Cohn does the same thing, a little bit more famous because I think the video still exists on that one, whereas I don't think the video exists on this. The Mets wind up losing 6-4. There's nothing in the box score that reflects any of this. It was simply single first base. Phil Garner scores. Part of a rough season for the Mets that had good components to it because they got Keith Hernandez and they called up Daryl Strawberry, but that moment was indicative of the LOL Mets of the time. <laughs> Finishing last place that season, but they would get better with those acquisitions you mentioned. 1984, the Mets start their ascent, winning 90 games. But Danny is still kind of the first guy off the bench role, right? At this point, still more of a utility player. And he played in 99 games, but 46 pinch hit appearances. He hit only 211 in those appearances. A difficult role to be in. 1985, the Mets are still a short step away. They won 98 games, but are unable to overtake the 101-win Cardinals. That season, Dwight Gooden has his historic Cy Young season. Gary Carter and Howard Johnson are now plugged into the lineup. And for Heap, it seems like all these memorable moments come against the Astros. Another memorable moment in 1985. Yeah, so he's facing Nolan Ryan in a game in Houston. Nolan Ryan strikes him out. And this is notable because it was Nolan Ryan's 4,000th career strikeout of his major league career. I asked Danny about it. He said he didn't remember strike three, but he did remember strike two. He said they called a pitch that was six inches off the plate. A strike, he said he knew he was pretty much toast at that point. There was also a memorable game that season on the 4th of July in Atlanta, a game that just would never end. Heap had six at-bats, but didn't come in until the eighth inning. And when he came in, the Mets are ahead 7-4. to four. But Atlanta ties the game up. Game goes to extra innings. So many extra innings. Into the 18th inning. Yeah, the Mets were winning 11-10 to 10 with two outs and two strikes in the 18th inning. And keep in mind that this is after rain delays, multiple rain delays, all sorts of craziness. And the pitcher comes up, Rick Camp. The Met pitcher was Tom Gorman, and Tom Gorman got ahead two strikes on Rick Camp, and John Sterling, who was the Braves announcer at the time, said that if Camp was to hit a home run, it would be the wildest, wackiest, most improbable play in Major League history. Rick Camp takes a mighty swing, the ball goes over Danny Heap's head, he puts his hands on his head, he can't believe it, it's a game-tying home run, the wildest, wackiest, most improbable moment in Major League history, sure enough. But the Mets end up winning in the next inning in the 19th, but it was 4 a.m. And because it's the 4th of July, well, now it's the 5th of July, the Atlanta stadium officials decided that they still want to 
set off fireworks for the, I guess, 10 remaining fans who stuck around through rain delays and 19 innings of, of bad baseball or great baseball. I mean, pitchers hitting home runs is great baseball to us. They set off these 4th of July fireworks. People are calling the police, thinking that there's a war on. <laughs> Danny had a different recollection. He, he said that as they were back to the hotel because of all the rain, they're trying to cross an intersection and they got to a low area and it felt like the bus was floating. And he, he thought, you know, this is how it's going to end. <laughs> so when Danny Heap told me this, I went to someone else who was on the bus, the PR director of the team at the time, Jay Horowitz, and said, I have this quote from Danny Heap. Can you verify that this was true and that he wasn't confusing this with another game? And he said, absolutely, positively, 100% true. Well, we would never question your research, Mark. Absolutely never. 1985, overall, a great year for Danny Heap. Hit 280 with seven home runs, career highs of 17 doubles and 42 RBIs. And now leading into 1986, where the Mets would peak and Danny had his best season as well. 282 average in 86 games, a career high 123 OPS plus. And we've mentioned several times what kind of characters were on this 86 Mets team. And particularly some folks who got along pretty well on that team were Danny and Bob Ojeda and Doug Sisk, who were referred to as the Scum Bunch, <laughs> which on a team with Lenny Dykstra to be called the Scum Bunch is, <laughs> I think in their defense, though, this group seems to have had a lot to drink. They would stay in the clubhouse after games, but unlike some of their other teammates who were getting in fights with cops and at Cooter's Bar in Houston, they seemed to maybe just enjoy a, a good party. And they would run the back of the plane, drinking and partying. One story from Jeff Perlman's The Bad Guys One involved Danny and maybe more importantly, Danny's wife, Jane. Unlike earlier road trips where it was just the players on the plane, now you had the players' wives because this was the NLCS and the Mets had just won the NLCS. So the whole team and their families are all flying back. Flight attendants bring out a cake mid-flight after everybody's been drinking champagne. And allegedly, Danny's wife Jane threw a piece of cake at Danny, which kicked off a plane-wide cake food fight. <laughs> champagne bottles are rolling in the aisles. Cake is smashed into seats. Walls, ceiling covered in cake. The Mets ended up getting a $7,500 cleaning bill, which Davey Johnson was given and was told that the players would have to pay this. So perhaps knowing that there was no way that he was going to be able to get the players to pay this, he goes into the locker room and he says, they want you to pay this bill. And he rips it up and says, we're going to make the owners more than enough money here, which gets the whole team on his side. Perhaps leading to the Mets' performance in the World Series in 1986, but all because Jane decided, allegedly, to throw a piece of cake at Danny. This is a, a great Mets team. They're in first place throughout the whole season, winning the NL East by 21 and a half games, totally dominant, and Danny was a big part of that. Heap used to be the first name off the bench. Now they had a solid rotation of options with Kevin Mitchell, Mookie Wilson, Lenny Dykstra, Ray Knight, Hojo, all getting significant playing time while maybe not having a set starter. 
So one of my good friends is Greg Prince. He's a Mets historian, the author of a really good book about the Met fan experience called Faith and Fear in Flushing. You saw him if you watched the 1986 Mets documentary on ESPN. He said, Danny Heap is a reflection of the depth of the 1986 Mets. To have carried a player who was capable of starting for most teams almost as an afterthought shows just how loaded the 24-man roster was. He was the embodiment of usefulness in the best sense of the word providing insurance in left, right, and first, and was a proven bat off the bench. So he had a few notable postseason moments, which we'll, we'll get to the others in a second, but I guess there are a couple of things that happened in the NLCS. One is that in the in the Game 3 where Len Dykstra hits the walk-off home run against Dave Smith, Danny Heap is the batter before he flies out. Uh, and then in the ninth inning of the sixth game, which is the game that the Mets clinched and then had that crazy plane food fight. He comes up with the bases loaded and two outs in the ninth inning. Great chance to be a hero. Tie game 3-3 after the Mets had scored three to tie. And unlike a 12-pitch at bat, he strikes out on a pitch that almost hit him. Uh, Dave Smith vexed him repeatedly. He was 0 for 10. Little foreshadowing of the hates to face. 0 for 10 Mm. in his career against Dave Smith. He ended up removed in the ninth, the bottom of the ninth inning. So he wasn't on the field for that victory when the Mets go on to win the game in 16 innings to go to the World Series. In that World Series, came off the bench and struck out to end game one of of the World Series. Yes, I actually slept through that game. I'm embarrassed to admit it. 11-year-old me couldn't make it through. I made it through all the others. He ends up getting a start at DH in Game 3 at Fenway, and, and he was the first official designated hitter in World Series history to have the initials DH. Which is, I guess, a fun... That should be a fun fact on the card. <laughs> That's but. a very fun fact. So in Game 3 of the World Series, the Mets were down two games to none. They had lost badly in Game 2. They didn't uh, practice before Game 3. And in the first inning of Game 3, they kind of set the tone for what was to come. They had a huge first inning against Oil Can Boyd. Len Dykstra hit a home run to lead off the game. But what's forgotten is the Red Sox botch a rundown in the inning that allows the Mets rally to, to keep going. And it, right after they botch the rundown, Danny Heap comes up and gets a two-run single that essentially puts that game away before it even really gets going. Uh, and the Mets go on to win both Game 3 and Game 4. He started Game 4 and went 0 for 4. Game 6, he was involved in as a pinch hitter in the fifth inning with the Mets trailing two to one and men on first and second, he ends up hitting into a double play, but the tying run scores on that, on that play. After that at bat, he's pulled from the game and, and goes to hang out in Davy Johnson's office to watch the rest of the game on TV. As that rally materializes, the Mets come back in the 10th from a five, three deficit heaps back in the manager's office watching on TV he wanted to leave and go out of the into the dugout to watch the rest of the game, and Keith Hernandez refuses to let anybody leave the office. Doesn't want to ruin the momentum, so Heap watches the ball go through Buckner's legs the same way as many of the rest of us on TV. Only we weren't in the manager's <laughs> office in Shea Stadium. So that's actually one one point about that is that if you watch the ball go through Buckner's legs and the winning run come home, he's met by a decent number of Met players at home plate, but it's not as large of a group necessarily as you would think because there were a whole, a whole bunch of people in the clubhouse. Danny thought that the World Series win was destiny, and when the Mets won Game 7, he got a ring and got to participate in the parade. And because Danny Heap was such an important part of that 86 Mets team. 
he got a spot in RBI baseball, which means it's time to go back to the RBI baseball corner with Brian. And we're back in the RBI baseball corner. Brian, welcome back to the show to talk about former Scumbunch member Danny Heap. Wonderful to be back and wonderful to talk about the New York Mets in RBI baseball. We talked about them a little bit in the Tim Tuffle episode. They're not the worst team, but they're kind of the worst of the middle tier. They're not a team that I love to play with, but they're a team that I always do play with because they have so many famous people. Their strengths are they have Daryl Strawberry, who's really good. They have a bit of speed with Money Dykstra and Mookie Wilson. They have a side armor, Jesse Roscoe. That's always fun. And they have lots of very famous people. Their weaknesses, I would say, hitting, pitching, the speed being wasted on lefties that ground out to second. Some people love Doc Gooden, but I've just never had that much success with him. One thing about the Mets and RBI baseball is you don't get those wonderful slimming 80s pinstripes on their uniforms. Something I always associate with Danny Heap. Uh, those blue and orange pinstripes on a white jersey. But the stadium in RBA Baseball is very blue, so it does make it feel like you're playing at Shea Stadium. No planes flying overhead, however. So how about Danny Heap? So Danny Heap is a guy. You know, you have eight <laughs> starters in RBA Baseball, and you have four bench players, and Danny Heap is one of the four bench players, and that's about as far as it goes. He doesn't really have any speed. He doesn't really have any power, but if he were on Houston, he would have the second most power. If he were on St. Louis, he would be tied for the third most power. On the other hand, if he's on Detroit or California, he has the 11th most power. So you have to put this all into context. What's odd about Danny Heap is that while he was a lefty in real life, he's actually a righty in RBI baseball. Maybe he has more value to bring in off the bench if he were a lefty in this game. But because he's a righty, maybe he has more limited use. He's kind of just a guy, and one of the problems is that you don't get any um, extra credit or any points for off-the-field shenanigans. Now, his shenanigans were arguably cheeky and fun, and maybe others were cruel and tragic, but nevertheless, his shenanigans do not actually win you any games in RBI baseball. So do you ever play him? I would not play Danny Heap, certainly not as a starter. The Mets have a couple of guys in the lineup that you need to sub out. Rafael Santana and Wally Backman. Neither of them are any good, but I would go with Tim Tuffle and Howard Johnson instead. Danny Heap is the guy that you save for pinch hitting for a pitcher late in the game. Maybe you're going up against a lefty and you bring him ready off the bench. And you do get a little bit of a bonus in RBA baseball when you bring in a pinch hitter. So maybe you get that home run bonus and suddenly Danny Heap hits him in a game-winning home run for you. But you're not starting him otherwise. You're just using him in that sub role. So Danny Heap, just a guy... But Brian, you are more than just a guy. You are our guy. So thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you, and I feel honored by that. And we're back. So how do you follow up a 1986 World Series win? In Danny's case, you become a free agent, and then you don't end up signing a contract until June 12th of the next season. So due to owner collusion, free agents were basically locked out of negotiating for a new contract with a new team. A lot of them ended up forced back to their original team. Danny ends up not signing until the middle of June, and he takes a pay cut from his 1986 salary to join the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
He's initially assigned to AA San Antonio, and then he never really got in the groove in the 1987 season. He, he hit only 163 in 60 games. And looking at this line on the card, it's it's actually it's really sad after that after that eighty six season and knowing that he had, had a World Series ring and then hitting one sixty three and only playing in sixty games it looks like more than the beginning of the end. Uh, looking at the card, and he said, "I'm just trying to forget it and start over. What could I have done to change things last season? The answer is nothing. So I try not to worry about it. But it it must have messed with his flow." that he didn't get started until the middle of June and then was sent to double A and didn't have a full spring training and didn't have consistent playing time that, that he had had with the Mets. He was better in 1988, but he still played sparingly. He hit 242 in 95 games. 54 of those were pinch hit appearances. This season, unlike his first season with the Mets where he was a really good pinch hitter, he hit 091 in 88. But he hit 316 when he was starting. So he, he did need that consistent playing time. He also went back to his his roots at St. Mary's and, and pitched in a game. It didn't go as well as that 069 ERA that he had at St. Mary's. He pitched two innings in a blowout against the Astros. Again with the Astros here. He gave up two runs on a two-run homer to Ken Caminiti. He did get to play in the NLCS that year, though. Two pinch hit plate appearances. He got a walk. In the World Series, his contribution was limited, I think, to say the least. He did get hits in games three and four, but was left stranded at third in game three and thrown out trying to steal in game four. So not a huge contribution to the team, but he gets his second ring in only three years as the Dodgers win the series. After the 88 season, he's released and signs with the Red Sox and got more significant playing time than in years past. A good year hitting 300, which is a career high, 49 RBIs and 355 plate appearances. In 1990, he was hurt and required back surgery and came back before the end of the season. So this was a down year for him. He hit only 174. He did make the postseason roster for the Red Sox and went 0 for 2 in the ALCS. In 1991, he was a free agent, joined the White Sox for spring training, but was assigned to AAA. He then got a short stint with Atlanta, hitting over 400 and limited at-bats over 14 games. However, they asked him to take a demotion to AAA, and at that point, his, his wife was pregnant, and he decided, this isn't worth it, and he, he decided to step away from the game and, and retired. So closing the book on Danny Heap, a final career line in almost 900 games, Danny had 2,222 plate appearances, 30 home runs, a 257 average, and an OPS plus of 94. And Mark, who did he love to face and hate to face? So this is obligatory that I'm here, right? We have to do this. Bryn Smith, he was 16 for 31 against the Expos right-hander. That's about as good as you can be against a pitcher if you're going to get 30 or more at-bats against him. And also former Expo and other teams as well, Jeff Reardon, the closer, he went 9 for 18. His hates to face, we mentioned Dave Smith before, 0 for 10. I like this, Lance McCullers Sr., 0 for 10. And Dwight Gooden, of course. And I guess that's in his non-Mets days, certainly 0 for 9. David, how about in retirement? Danny and his wife, Jane, live in San Antonio. They had two kids, Joanna and Robert. And Danny went into coaching, as so many of our players here do. But he started out as an assistant coach at University of the Incarnate Word in 1992. 
He ended up becoming the program's head coach in 1998, and he took that team through promotions from NAIA to NCAA Division II and into Division I in 2014. He finally left the program in 2017 after enduring four straight losing seasons in D1. He left the program with a 601 and 473 record overall and five conference championships. He's currently a high school baseball coach. He did not uh, retire yet. He's still in coaching. He is at Central Catholic uh, High School in Texas. He said in an interview that you can find on YouTube that Division One baseball is a young man's game because of all the work that goes into it as far as recruiting and all the ancillary things that go with being a Division One program. At a high school level, he's able to just kind of focus in on baseball and focus in on, on teaching, and he likes teaching hitting. He said he teaches it how he was taught by Walt Riniak and Bill Robinson. That makes a lot of sense and sounds like a good move for him. So what do we think about him now that we've looked at him a little bit more? I didn't know much about Danny Heap. And Mark, I was excited when you suggested it in the same way when you suggested Neil Allen. I was like, I know nothing about Neil Allen. I know nothing about Danny Heap. Let's bring on somebody who who does, who cares deeply about this player, remembers him from their from their time. Because that's these are the kind of guys that we do like to talk about here. And I think adding your perspective and adding your research helps us add something to it that maybe just looking at his baseball reference might not have added. And so I I was interested in Danny Heap and figuring out how this kind of longtime role player leads to a Mark Simon Saber bio. As that quote said earlier, you know, he reflected the strength of this Mets lineup and then reflected the strength of that Dodgers lineup in 1988 and part of two kind of iconic teams. But I did find that quote from your interview about how Danny wanted to be remembered. And he said, I'd like to be remembered as a good team player who got along with everybody. You want to be the best player, but you want to be remembered as a teammate. And I feel like Danny is remembered as a a part of these cohesive units. And he still kind of instills that same mentality in players that he's coaching now. For Danny Heap, I like the Greg Prince quote. You can sum him up in three words. Embodiment of usefulness. He was a useful player. He was not a great player. He was a decent to to good player on his best day. And as he said, want to be remembered as a good teammate. I have to think that everyone on the Mets felt pretty good about him. He still gets mentioned from time to time on Met broadcast by Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. Well, thank you, Mark. We really appreciate your insight, the writing that helped inspire the episode, your continuous contribution to this show and to the community of baseball fans. So where can fans find you? I am on Twitter, uh, Mark A. Simon Says. And your podcast. Yeah, so we have a podcast. I work for Sports Info Solutions. In short, we're a company that invents statistics and sells them to major league teams, whether it be Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL. We've been around for 20 years. We do a podcast, uh, and the focus of the podcast is defensive excellence. And the most recent episode was really fun, really, really fun. Brett Phillips of the Tampa Bay Rays joined us, not a Met, but a really fun person to talk to, and certainly someone who, like Danny Heap, remembered as a good teammate. Fantastic. You need to develop a statistic for when you forget that the play is still going on and you allow a run to score. Thank you for for all of that, Mark. And thank you, David, for the story. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever been called a mountain torrent, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.